The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And today, due to a glitch in the system, we're going to replay the Duff McKagan joke of the week from last Friday. Even though it's Wednesday, an extra special bonus joke of the week. Uh, my awesome producer, Stacy had a technical issue and the joke did not make it into the show at first. So for those of you who missed it, it was not edited out on purpose. Thank you for listening. And here you go. It's the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Do over. Hey, Chris Jericho, it's Duff McKagan calling you. Uh, I'm calling you from Snowmageddon. They're calling it here in Seattle, Snowmageddon. Uh, it's just snow, by the way, but we never get it up here, so Snowmageddon, it shall be. Uh, hey, listen, you know what's uh, worse than ants in your pants? Uncle. Thank you very much. Bye. There you go. Maybe I should have uh, left it, edited out. What do you think? Uh, uncles in your pants? Uh, listen, always a pleasure to have Duff, and he's going to have a new joke for us this Friday. Sorry to everybody who missed it last Friday. It was hilarious. There was a huge backlash that the tough joke of the week got edited out, but we should be all good now. All right, let's get to the big show today. Back to the paranormal and back to Bigfoot. My guest today, Phil Hall, wrote a book called The Weirdest Movie Ever Made, the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film. And that's exactly what it's about. Uh, you've seen this. If you've ever seen any Bigfoot clips, even if you've only seen one, I guarantee it's this one. It's the uh, close-up of the Bigfoot walking through the woods, kind of in color, uh, through the trees. It's called the Patterson film, or you know, more specifically, the Patterson-Gimlin film. And Phil thoroughly researched that 59-second thir- uh, shaky, grainy footage that offered evidence to the existence of the Bigfoot. I know most of you who listen have seen that film, and if you haven't, just go to YouTube and type in the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot. Uh, it's the most famous and the most controversial sighting of Bigfoot ever, and Phil found out everything he could about the movie, shares the backstory of how it was filmed and then how it was distributed and released, what people initially thought about it when it first came out in the 70s. And Phil even breaks down all the conspiracies surrounding the film, like whether a well-known Hollywood special effects guy really made the costume so these guys could create their own Sasquatch sighting. It's very, very interesting stuff. Does the Patterson-Gimlin footage really show a Bigfoot or is it just another Hollywood conspiracy theory? We're going to find out with expert Phil Hall the weirdest movie ever made. Talking about the Patterson Gimlet film. Let's check it out right now. Phil Hall, Bigfoot on Talk is Jericho. 
All right, so uh, I'm here with with Phil Hall, who wrote a book called The Weirdest Movie Ever. So I'm like, what is it? Like, is it like a bad B movie, or was it is? Did we find out it's... Well, it's actually the weirdest movie ever made. Oh, gotcha. And the movie, it's not a bad B movie. It's actually a rather famous film. Most people... And it's a real movie. It's a real movie. Uh, it's called the Patterson-Gimlin film. And most people probably don't know it by the name, but they'll know it once they see it. That's the grainy, shaky footage from 1967 that was shot in the forest in Northern California that shows Bigfoot. And everybody knows about Bigfoot from that little 59 seconds of footage. Yeah, it's the famous one that if you've ever seen any type of in search of type Bigfoot story, whatever, they always show the footage of, and I remember seeing it when I was a little kid, there was books that had stills from this movie on the cover. That's right. You know, it's the famous, he's walking through kind of a forest, but not really. It's a, it's a, a clearing in the forest. Yeah. Uh, they're going over... Uh, it's called Bluff Creek, and uh, Bigfoot is supposedly a she. Though most people think of it as a him, and uh, you don't really. Bigfoot doesn't come to the camera. She's walking away from the camera. And at one point, turns around to look, and has a very wide arm spread. And a lot of people have used that image of Bigfoot with the arm spread out in anything promoting Bigfoot, whether mm -hmm. it's a company that uses a Bigfoot name or if there's a Bigfoot conference going on. That's probably the most famous single image. It was frame number 352 from the film. <laughs> Can you be more specific? Yeah. And, 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 and why do you say that, mention that the Bigfoot was a she? Because uh, Bigfoot, if you watch the footage carefully, has floppy breasts. Right. And uh, it was assumed that uh, because of that, it was a she. If it was a man, it would... It would have probably had some uh, serious medical problems, yeah. <laughs> right. But it's assumed to have been a she uh, because of that, and that actually had created some controversy with scientists who say, well, there's if this is supposedly a primate, primates don't have furry breasts, whereas Bigfoot, if you see the film, has furry breasts. Hmm. Now, just take a step back from this. What prompted you to want to write a book about this? Well, I had finished uh, my previous book, which was called In Search of Lost Films, and that was published by Bear Man and Media. And I what wanted... are some of the examples of that? Oh, these are films that have disappeared over the years and no copies exist, like London After Midnight. Wow, there's no copies of that? No. Actually, there are, there are thousands of films that are considered uh, completely lost. Because London After Midnight is a Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney, that's right. See, when I was a kid, I used to read books like... We talked about Bigfoot one, but about, about old movies, and I can actually see a still. I had old horror movies of London After Midnight. He yeah. was, I don't know, some kind of a weird creature. On he the was supposed to be a vampire, and all prints are considered lost. The last known print uh, disappeared in a fire in 1967. How does that happen? Uh, well, that's a long story, but uh, in that case, the film was on a nitrate film, which was highly flammable, and it was poorly preserved, and there was a fire at the MGM. Uh, vault where the film was stored and that film went up in flames along with a whole lot of other films hmm. so you decided to write a book about that I, that was the last book which came out two years ago and it's still in print it's called in search of lost films for those who want to look it up mm -hmm. and, on amazon and uh, google that's right mm -hmm. and i want to do another book and i approached my publisher and i said i have an idea for a new book i want to do something called 100 films that changed the world what do you think? And the publisher said, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> just go back and just give me one film that changed the world. So I looked at the list I had compiled of the 100 films, and I realized, you know, it was a bad idea because a lot of the films on the list had been written about to death. We don't need another book on Citizen Kane or Godfather, Godfather the Wind or Star Godfather. Wars. Yeah. No, we don't need that. But there was one film on the list that 
was not written about to death, and that was the Patterson-Gimlin film. And I know that there are books about Bigfoot out there, but those books are about whether Bigfoot exists, whether it doesn't exist. But nobody ever approached the Patterson-Gimlin film from a cinematic perspective. And I thought, well, this could be interesting because everybody knows about Bigfoot simply because of that film. And I pitched the idea, and the publishers had run with it. Because the film, like you said, is 59 seconds long. Correct. How many frames is it? Oh, I, uh, I don't know how many frames. I mean, I mean the, the film, the, the, actually, short. it is short. The footage itself, it's part of an overall five-minute uh, reel that Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin shot, but most of the reel had just footage of the forest where they were riding their horses through, which is of really no interest to anybody. It's just the last 59 seconds of the reel, which is of interest, which is where they finally get to see Bigfoot. Very interesting concept to to want to write about that because it is a pretty it is a film. It's not a film like you would think of, like you mentioned. Oh, like the, pick one of these films. Mm-hmm. You're thinking, you know, fictional Godfather type things. Yeah. So by choosing this, where do you start your research and how do you get a full book? Because, like I said, I, I read through it. It's 160 pages or so. About 120 pages. 120 yeah. pages. How do you get 120 pages out of a 60 second film? Not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to basically write about who Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were, what they were doing at Bluff Creek on that particular day, how they got there, why they were there, where the concept of the Sasquatch came from that made them go looking for it. And what really interested me is how they were able to get this film out of the forest and into the world, because neither of them were filmmakers and they had no connections in the entertainment world. They were actually both former rodeo riders who lived in Washington State. And I remember I was a little kid in the 70s, and you turn on the TV or open a magazine, Bigfoot was always there. And I always assumed, well, Bigfoot was always there. And I started wondering, well, how did Bigfoot get there? How did they get their film in front of everybody? And just started to do the research, going through a whole lot of textbooks uh, on the subject, looking up articles online, uh, speaking with people who were experts in the field, and was able to piece together the whole story of this uh, little 59-second film. Before we start talking about that, everybody that's listening to this, and I have a big fan base that enjoys the paranormal kind of thing, go watch the movie on YouTube. Type in Patterson, Gimlin, Bigfoot. You'll see it. It's 59 seconds. Go check it out right now. Okay, you've seen the film. If you haven't seen it, then go back and watch it some other time. But I guess the first question I'm going to ask you is, do you, do you believe that this is real? Well, that's actually not in the book. I, I wanted to keep my opinion out of the book because I didn't want to come out saying, this is a book that supports... Bigfoot's existence, or this is a book that denies it, because that's a lose-lose situation. Okay. Gonna, uh, well, then let me, let me re- go ahead. But what I can say is my opinion in watching the film is I'm not certain, but if Bigfoot did exist, I suspect that the, the creature is extinct today. Because first of all, you have to remember this was shot 51 years ago, and it's sort of not likely that uh, the animal would have survived all these years. And even Roger Patterson felt that it was an elderly creature that he encountered in the woods. I think that the Bigfoot uh, creature, which actually comes from Native American folklore, which goes back many, many centuries, way before the Europeans came here, and it's possible there was a species. Uh, it might have been a North American version of what uh, had been a primitive Asian ape called the Gigantopithecus that could have come from Asia across the uh, ice bridge when the Asia and the Americas were connected during that way, way back in the prehistoric times, lived much longer than many people may have assumed and uh, would have lasted in isolated places. And it's possible that it was still in Northern uh, California by the time that Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin showed up. 
because when you watch the film, we'll talk about about. You know, I could have rephrased the question, and we will get into this. What evidence does the movie show that it is legit? And when you see the film, you know, we'll, I'll, we'll, we'll get to it naturally. Let's go back to to when you first started to to work on this, the actual book itself. Yeah. Where did you start? Well, basically started uh, with the film and describing the film, and then I had to figure out who. Patterson and Gimlin were so started writing that and then basically I don't really write in a linear fashion I don't go from start to finish so the book was written out of chapter order so I would work on one chapter then I would go to another uh, part of the book where we're describing how the film got seen by public then go even further there's a collection of uh, essays from notable filmmakers and film writers uh, giving their impression of the film because nobody ever really reviewed the film as a film the way you would review uh, a Star is Born or anything that's currently in the theater. And then I'd go back and uh, to the beginning and start writing that. That's the way I put the book together, which is probably not the best way to write a book, but it's the only <laughs> way I know how. So who were these two guys, Patterson and Gimlin? What, and what possessed them to go on this hunt to try and find a Bigfoot? Well, they were both former uh, veterans of the Korean War. They lived in Washington State. Uh, they both rode in the rodeo for some years and then retired from that. They worked odd jobs in uh, Washington State, Patterson owned a fertilizer company for a while, and he fancied himself as an inventor. He tried to create some kitchen gadgets, but wasn't able to sell them. And he was the one who was really obsessed with the Sasquatch, and he did a lot of research on his own. He even self-published a book on whether or not the Sasquatch exists in North America. And he had gotten a tip that there had been uh, giant footprints discovered in the summer of 1967 in the Bluff Creek area, which is outside Humboldt, California. Now, nine years earlier, there was a discovery of large human-type footprints in that area, and the local newspaper dubbed the, uh, the footprints Bigfoot. That's where the name came from. Mm -hmm. The only problem with that is many years later, the original discovery of the footprints was uh, shown to be a hoax, and uh, the person who created the hoax came forward, and even the newspaper reporter who reported on it also knew he it was a hoax but he thought it'd be fun to uh, have a phony story in the newspaper the original fake news if you want <laughs> so uh patterson heard about uh, the new footprints in the area and he assumed well there must be something to it he had a 16 millimeter camera which he had uh, rented from a local store and didn't bother to return which was another issue and he told Bob Gimlin, who was a friend of his, he was going down there to look for the Sasquatch or whatever created the footprints. Would Gimlin like to come along? Uh, Gimlin wasn't really obsessed with the idea, but he thought it might be fun just to get out of Washington State and go riding in the woods because he was something of an outdoorsman. Gimlin was also part Native American. He was one quarter Apache, which is, I only raise that point because the Sasquatch folklore is unique to the Native American culture. But as a Native American, Gimlin wasn't really particularly interested in that aspect mm. of his culture. Hmm, right, right, right. Because that's where the name Sasquatch comes from, is the very Indian it is, Well, actually, the tribes throughout the continent each have a different name for it from their, uh, their different languages. Sasquatch, I think, is from the uh, Indian tribes that are in British Columbia. And that's where uh, it sort of has been anglicized. Uh, each tribe has its own different pronunciation. What are some of the other... Uh, I'm not even going to get into I have enough trouble speaking English, let alone speaking <laughs> Kwaki Atoll. I don't know if there was other types of names that we could actually pronounce, like the Windigo or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, okay, they go, and then... And, and, and are you finding all this research out by 
going to a library? Are you contacting the families of these guys? I've um, contact. No, I didn't. Still alive? Uh, Roger Patterson passed away in the early seventies. Bob Gimlin is still alive. Uh, he still appears every now and then at Bigfoot conferences around the country. I didn't interview him for the book. He's given a ton of interviews, and he's always given the same story in every interview, and I figured, well, I'm not really going to get anything new out of it. And from what I understand, he's also uh, not the most gregarious and outgoing person, and the last thing he needs is some character knocking on his door saying, I'd like to ask you about you-know-who, and uh, so I decided not <laughs> to bother him. Uh, but it w I did purchase a number of books on uh, the history as we know it, of uh, Bigfoot and where it came from. And they were, it was very helpful in terms of giving me background on the Sasquatch legend and on the biography of uh, Patterson and Gimlin. But it took a lot of research online going through old uh, newspapers and magazines that I've been able to find archived online to give more detail as to how the film was made and also how the film got out there too, because that's a story that many people aren't even aware of. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Bill Hall's book is called The Weirdest Movie Ever Made, the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film. It's out now. You can get it on Amazon, wherever you get books. Uh, okay, Phil, tell us how Patterson and Gimlin were able to get this film out for people to see. What had happened after they came out of the woods and they had the film developed, they decided to take it to the University of British Columbia. And they did that because they figured in British Columbia there's more familiarity with the concept of the Sasquatch if they had gone to Harvard or Yale or any place in the East Coast. So they took the film up to Vancouver and they got some professors from the college to take a look at it and the screening was a disaster. They All, all the professors said this is a fake. So uh, Patterson didn't really give up. He, was, he really had an incredible uh, belief in himself and what he had on film and he started making calls to various me uh, media outlets and the Associated Press managed to uh, run a story on the fact that these guys f had the film. What's interesting is that the Associated Press did not run photographs from the film. So here they're saying, well, these guys filmed a, a mythical creature, but there's no photographic evidence that they did. Go figure. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, Life magazine, which was the big publication at the time, this is uh, already late 1967, early 1968, they wanted to see the film. Maybe they would run pictures from it. So Patterson and Gimlin and Patterson's brother-in-law, Roger Deatley, I'm sorry, Al Deatley, uh, flew to New York with their film. And Life magazine said, we want to show this to some scientists before we agree to run it. So they got scientists from the American Museum of Natural History, and they got zoologists from the Bronx Zoo to watch the film. And they all said it was a fake. And they, Life magazine wouldn't touch the, the film. And you would think, well, maybe this is the end of the story, but there was a, a fellow named Ivan Sanderson who was very big into cryptozoology, which is where Bigfoot and all sorts of monsters like the Loch Ness Monster and the Abominable Snowman fall in. Chupacabras and Mothman and Ogopogo, yes. And uh, <laughs> he believed in it, and he contacted a small magazine called Argosy, and they agreed to run it. And so Argosy, in I think it was April of 68, 
had Bigfoot on the cover. They had the pictures of Bigfoot with uh, particularly uh, frame 352 with the arms stretched out on the cover, along with a picture of Patterson and Gimlin, which was kind of odd because in that picture, Gimlin was wearing a long uh, black wig to make him look like an Indian scout, where in fact he actually had a crew cut. So why? why? I don't know. I think more credibility? Because he's part Indian, and so they figure, well, this is what an Indian looks like. So uh, that was there. And the magazine ran the, the story with the pictures, and it didn't really make very much of an impression, because this was 1968, and there was a lot going on that year, and people really weren't that interested in Bigfoot. And you would think by now the story would have come to a conclusion. He couldn't get anywhere. But a miracle happened, at least for Roger Patterson. He got a phone call from England. The British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, wanted to show the film on British television. There was only one problem. They didn't have money to pay for licensing. Because you think of BBC as being very prestigious, and it is, but it was also a low-budget operation in the 60s. So Roger Patterson made a deal with them. He said, all right, if you want to make a documentary about uh, Bigfoot and the Sasquatch legend, we'll give you the film, but... We want to have in return the film that you're showing on British TV. And BBC said, okay, as long as you don't broadcast it on US TV. And Patterson wasn't going to do that because he had no connections on TV. So he got the film from the BBC. Then he shot some new footage of himself and his friends riding around in the woods talking about how they're looking for Bigfoot. And he created a documentary called Bigfoot America's Abominable Snowman. And he started showing it in theaters in the Northwest. Uh, he would book theaters and in towns where there were no theaters he had high school auditoriums and vfw halls he'd come into town show the film maybe twice a day uh friday saturday sunday he'd make appearances talking about how he encountered bigfoot and he went town by town through the northwest and then into the midwest and that's how people started to uh see bigfoot for the first time that's really smart yeah it's called it's called four walling and actually it's uh it's a distribution pattern that a lot of independent filmmakers had used over the years. Uh, Oscar Michaud, the pioneering black filmmaker, used that in the 20s, and John Cassavetes used it with his art movies in the 70s, but nobody ever gave credit to Roger Patterson for doing that and for giving us uh, Bigfoot on the big screen. Let me ask you this. Uh, when they went uh, you know, searching for Bigfoot, how long were they out in the woods before they saw it? Well, that was, there's a bit of a discrepancy there because uh, the accounts of the actual Odyssey uh, changed over time. Some accounts they had, they were there for about two weeks. Others, they were just there for a couple of days. Uh, they were camped out in the woods. They had, they brought horses with them. Uh, they were in a part of the forest where you, it wasn't accessible by car, so they had to take uh, their horses with them to go looking about. In that, and that's one of the problems with the film because I think there's less of a problem with what's on the screen when. You consider actually what went into them making this, the film or actually shooting the film because uh, their stories sort of changed over time. They, we don't really know how long they were in the woods. And also there was a bit of an oddity and what happened when they came out of the woods because they claimed they went to the post office and had the film uh, sent by airmail to uh, Patterson's brother-in-law back in Washington State to be processed. Now, the day they shot this was on a Friday. Assuming that they had shot the film in the afternoon, they didn't know what time. They assumed it was between 1 or 3 o'clock till they got out of the woods to get to the post office. Unless they got there by about 5 o'clock, assuming it closed at 5 o'clock. Back then, they didn't really have the overnight uh, service that we have today. They didn't have FedEx. They didn't have UPS overnight. And I don't think the post office was going to send uh, a film at 5 o'clock overnight from California up to Washington State. 
There was a small airport in Humboldt, California, but there's no record of uh, any flight going between California and Washington State on that particular day. They insist, however, that the film was sent overnight to uh, Al Dietley in Washington State, but he would have gotten it on a Saturday, and any film lab up there would have been closed on a Saturday, any commercial lab. And Al claimed uh, later on he couldn't remember where the film was processed. So for me, uh, the fact that there are these sort of holes in the story about what they were doing there and how they got the film out is more troubling than what's actually on screen. Why were people dismissing it as fake? Because they just didn't want to believe it? Or what kind of evidence were they seeing that they didn't like? The scientists who saw the film originally in the late 60s, uh, they just thought it was a man in a suit. Uh, There was no evidence of any primate in North America. But unfortunately, the problem with that is that over the years, there have been a lot of species that had been unknown to science, including species that were considered to be extinct from the prehistoric era, that suddenly showed up in contemporary times. Most famous example would have been a fish called the coelacanth, which is, uh, yeah. you, you can find it off the coast of the Comoro Islands. And everyone had assumed that disappeared uh, way back with the dinosaurs in 1938. Lo and behold, here comes the coelacanths. Like millions of yeah. years later. And it wasn't just one. Yeah, it's they still found alive. eight or nine of them. Or they're still there. They're yeah. still there. They haven't disappeared. And there are other reports of animals uh, that were considered to be extinct. There was a large bird in New Zealand called the moa, which supposedly had disappeared around the 15th century. But there were still unverified sightings of it as late as the 19th century. But, you know, with science, unless something is actually put in front of them or they find it themselves, they're not going to give credit for anything. And I guess they assume that these two cowboys from Washington State with their little grainy film won up the scientific community, and they couldn't really uh, accept that. In many ways, I think that was one, more than anything was the reason why it was uh, dismissed so quickly. It's interesting, too, because when you see the film, and you touched upon this in the book, okay, it's a guy in a suit, but gorilla costumes didn't really look like that in 1967. They look like gorilla costumes that you see in the movies, like, you know, Mighty Joe Young that looks like a guy in a gorilla costume. Yeah, or if, if you see anything like Abbott and Costello, right. the Bowery Boys being chased by a gorilla, it looks like, obviously, like a vaudeville gorilla costume. The thing with Bigfoot is that it looks wrong. It doesn't look like a symmetrical creature. The legs are unusually uh, muscular. The arms are much longer than you would have expected. Uh, of the breasts, of course, uh, you don't expect that at all. And even back then, gorilla costumes were primarily male gorillas. So if you wanted to rent a gorilla costume for a Halloween party or to make a bad horror movie, you were going to get a male costume. You weren't going to get a costume with floppy breasts. Yeah, and it's like you said, these guys didn't have a lot of cash to be making their own you know, costume. And the, the gait of the of the creature is strange. The arms are strange. It's 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 just doesn't. I don't know. Like, like I said, you can be on either side of the coin, but if you're on the side that it could be real, it doesn't really look and walk like a person would walk. No, and that's why I called the book the weirdest movie ever made because it's the only word I could use to describe this is weird. You're looking at something that you shouldn't be looking at. You're looking at something that that shouldn't exist. But does it exist? Is this real? Is this not real? Did these two cowboys find something that eluded science uh, and white men, for that matter, for centuries? Or were they uh, they playing tricks on us? And Roger Patterson, until his death, always insisted it was real. And Bob Gimlin, to this day, insists that it was real. So they see it. You mentioned they put it up. They put it on the screen. What's the reaction like of, of not 
experts, but what's the reaction of people? They loved it. They, they ate it up. It became very popular. It became so popular that word spread about this film, and some uh, cheapjack filmmakers decided to make their own exploitation Bigfoot films. And starting in around 1971, we started to see a lot of movies about Bigfoot or Bigfoot-type creatures uh, playing in drive-ins and playing in grindhouses around the country. People accepted it. And even to this day, when I told people I was working on this book, the reaction was, oh my God, Bigfoot, I love Bigfoot. This is going to be great. People, you just say Bigfoot, people smile. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't believe in Bigfoot, they still smile. There's just something about the, the whole concept of this creature uh, that, that makes people happy. Mm-hmm. And one of the quotes I have in the book is from Jane Goodall, the, the celebrated anthropologist. And she said that she would like to believe in this and she wants to believe in it too. She's not dismissive of it all because she's spoken with uh, Native Americans who explain where Bigfoot fits into their culture and to their folklore. And she, she said she would love for this thing to, to be out there, and she was sort of hopeful that it was out there. Mm-hmm. So what happened with Roger Patterson then after that film came out? Well, Patterson at the time was uh, actually fighting a life-and-death battle with cancer, and he didn't win the battle. He passed away in early 1972. Mm. Just as the whole Bigfoot craze was was getting started. In a way, it was sort of a a good time for him to exit, if such a thing uh, can be said, because Patterson started to license the film out to other uh, production companies for them to use in their documentaries. But he was sort of reckless in that, and he sort of made multiple deals uh, that had took years to be sorted out by lawyers. Uh, Patterson also wasn't the the nicest person to his friend Bob Gimlin. He sort of cheated him out of the profits for the movie that he was showing around the country. And Gimlin had to sue uh, Patterson's widow in order to get his share of the money. Because the Gimlin part I wasn't even familiar with to me. It was always the Patterson film. I think it was even listed as that, you know, in the earlier yeah, well, Patterson did everything he could to sort of elbow Gimlin out of the way. And Gimlin was not... uh, the gregarious personality mm. that Patterson was. So he let his partner do most of the talking. And it got to a point that uh, Patterson was just front and center. And a lot of the stories that were written about the film just mentioned uh, Gimlin either as uh, being a friend or being uh, a hunting guide, but not really being an equal partner in this venture. Hmm. So so what else were you kind of dealing with and writing about? Like, were, were you talking about people? Like, do you... Do you have people that are giving, you know, we're speculating as to the gate of the creature. Was there actual experts going, this is the reason why it's real. This is the reason why it's not real. That came later. Uh, There aren't a lot of uh, people in science and academia that want to give a lot of time to it. Uh, There was a fellow named uh, Rene Dehinden who was out of Canada who took the film to Europe to have it studied by scientists there who were a little more sympathetic to it, but they weren't willing to commit that this was actually an previously unknown species that had been discovered. In terms of measuring the gate, uh, there have been efforts in recent years to digitize the film and to slow it down to sort of uh, make it not as shaky as it is in the original 16 millimeter version. So we could see what Bigfoot would have been walking like if Patterson's camera wasn't shaking all over the place. And that's also on YouTube too, if uh, people can see both the original as well as uh, the restored digitized version. It's interesting, too, because it's not like one of those things where you just kind of see it for a second. Like it's walking for, you know, basically the 59 seconds, and it just, just walks away. Like, see you later, buddy. Yeah. N- not dangerous, not angry, but just apathetic. 
And what's funny is that all of the Bigfoot narrative films that came afterwards into the 70s and the 80s, and also a lot of the Bigfoot uh, stuff on TV, like Six Million Dollar Man, was very different from the Bigfoot that's in the Patterson-Gimlin film, because that's supposedly an indifferent female walking away from the camera. Whereas if you're watching these other films, it's a hostile male right. who's attacking people and sometimes has a sexually rapacious appetite for uh, the young women in the cast. So <laughs> I don't know where that came from, because that's certainly not in the Native American folklore, but it made for Hollywood, baby. It made entertaining movies. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I saw, I used to go to the movies with my mom, and there's a poster for, I think it was The Legend of Boggy Creek. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm not going to that one. There's yeah. no way. That was inspired by Bigfoot because there have been sightings of the Sasquatch or Sasquatch-type creatures all over the continental U.S. In fact, the only state where no one's ever seen a Sasquatch is Hawaii, for obvious reasons. Hmm. But uh, Boggy Creek took place in the south, and there was they had their sort of version of uh, the Sasquatch down there, and that was... Uh, what that film was about, but it was obviously inspired by a lot of the interest that was growing around the country with Bigfoot. And it's funny you mention that because a lot of people don't realize that was one of the most popular box office films of 1972. Wow. And that was the year of The Godfather and Cabaret and Poseidon Adventure and Deep Throat. And this little uh, film, which was playing in drive-ins and grindhouses uh, all over the country, uh, was in the top 10 with them. Well, like I said, it was still playing, like I'm I'm 47, so I was two at the time. That's not when I went with my mom. It must have been about 76 or 77. They must have kept putting it out and re-releasing it or re-showing it, you know? Well, a lot of people who were not around in the 70s don't realize this, but when a movie opened, it didn't always go away. A lot of times it would play in theaters for, uh, for two or three years or it would be re-released one or two years after mm-hmm. its initial presentation. So... I remember there would be films that uh, would be opening, say it would be around uh, October or November, and if they were up for the Academy Award or won that, they'd still be in the theaters by next summer. Sure. Yeah. I remember like Star Wars, like 42nd uh, you know, week in a row that's been in the theaters or whatever. So from dealing with the Patterson film, Patterson-Gimlin, is there other films? Is there any other types of, of clips like this or, or pictures of anything There else? are a lot of films out there which have mostly been dismissed as hoaxes for because they look like men in bad gorilla, gorilla suits. suits. Yeah. yeah. There's just no nice way around it. It's always a little bit too convenient that the, the, the guys shooting these films or videos are uh, too far away so you can get a clear picture and the way that the creature is behaving is not what uh, anything like what was in Patterson Gimlin. They, they move like humans they're, they're, they're kind of funny to watch, but they're really a waste of time. Yeah, because even now when you go look at the clips, it's always like, you know, something will run across a snowy road like in Russia. Or there's something coming out of the hills chasing the sheep and horses away, you know, wherever. But th- there's nothing like, like, the, like the, the Patterson film is the equivalent of the, the surgeon's photo of the Loch Ness Monster, which, of course, has now been discounted as a fraud. But when you think of Loch Ness Monster, you see that picture. When you think of Bigfoot, you see this film, you know? Uh, People also have asked me, well, how come there haven't been videos of Bigfoot because everyone's running around with their cell phones now? Well, the Sasquatch was a nocturnal creature, according to the Native American folklore. So the fact that Patterson and Gimlin saw it in daylight was a one in a million opportunity for them. Uh, Patterson had theorized, I think I mentioned earlier, that either it was an elderly uh, Sasquatch, or it might have been blind or partially blind and didn't realize that it, what it was doing out in the middle of the day, because that's not when the creatures were supposed to be out. 
and also these are creatures that, uh, if they did exist, spent their times staying away from people. So uh, Sasquatches don't take selfies. Mm -hmm. They're they don't want anything to do with people, and they could, I would assume, like any creature of the woods, would hear a predator coming from a very long, great distance and would get out of the way before anybody could find it. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. One of the things I like about your book is uh, in between chapters you have little kind of sidebar Sasquatch stories. Tell us some of those. Oh, those things are funny. I mean, those are things I picked up while doing research. Uh, there was a woman in Idaho who... Uh, claimed that a Sasquatch was chasing a deer across the highway and the deer ran into her car and she was explaining to the state troopers how she wound up hitting the deer and that didn't get into the police report though it did get into the the newspapers uh, there's another thing it was a man down in North Carolina who made himself a Sasquatch suit I guess out of uh, bear fur and whatever beaver for whatever he could find so he could commune with the Sasquatches in the woods and he claimed that uh, he did meet one <laughs> They're all out there, and there's some lady who created a perfume, uh, she said, inspired by the Sasquatch. And assuming that the, the Sasquatch uh, doesn't take regular baths, I don't think that's going to be uh, <laughs> uh, quite a aromatic fragrance. I had a, a, a guy on the show, he's a cryptozoologist named M.K. Davis, and he had what he claimed was Sasquatch hair. And it was very coarse and very like something you'd find like on your rug if someone left hair down. So then I was like, well, well like it's really weird because it's very coarse, like I said, like almost like steel wool. But I was like, well, like, why don't you take this and get like a DNA test on it or something? Find out like, what it is. And it's like, well, of course, there's no reason why he didn't. But, you know, there are these types of people that have this quote unquote evidence of this creature that can't be explained. And, and that continues with the mystery of the Sasquatch is because, well, people say, how come there's no skeleton? How come there's no right. carcass? Well, in many ways, actually what Ivan Sanderson said when the uh, Argosy Magazine article came out, he said, you know, uh, when was the last time you went to Africa and found a dead lion? Or if you go into the, into the woods or, or find a dead bear, right. nature uh, basically cleans up its own dead Hmm. And carcasses disappear. It's not like you're going to. That's a great point. Yeah. You don't so, see any dead de uh, deer carcasses and bones around. No. So, or even if you're uh, we're here in New York City, you don't even see dead pigeons for that matter. So, mm. what happens to them? Other uh, animals get them. Well, other animals. Yes, the, uh, scavengers come and they're able to uh, to clean that. And, and over time, the forest overtakes everything that's in it. So, assuming that the Sasquatch lives in the forest, it would have died in the forest too. And it would have been prey to whatever uh, buzzards or crows or whatever scavengers were there. And then over time, the forest would overtake the, uh, the skeletons and, and any evidence of the animals would vanish. But you feel that the, the, the animal would be extinct? The species would be extinct at this point? I'm, if the creature in the Patterson-Gimlin film is real, and again, this was 51 years ago, it's not likely it's still alive today. I'm suspecting that this might have been one of the last of its kind. And that's just my theory, because, well, 
the creature at Bluff Creek was never seen again. And it wasn't for lack of people looking for it. So I'm under the impression that if this is real, that might have been the last one uh, that was out there. But it was a, uh, a female. Yeah. So that would mean that, you know, there's males. Well, creation. well, Mr. Bigfoot didn't turn up uh, in that. <laughs> and uh, Patterson and Gimlin didn't hear any uh, sound saying, honey, get yourself home. And dinner's not going to cook itself. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's possible this would have been the last of its kind. So in doing all of this research and writing this book, how did you how did you end it? Like, you tell the story about this whole stuff we've been talking about. And then what's kind of the, the epilogue of it? The epilogue is what happened to uh, the various people who were involved. Bob Gimlin is still with us. The um, film that Roger Patterson showed around the country uh, can't be seen today due to copyright problems. And They don't know who owns it? Well, it, well, the BBC still owns the rights to the film, so it can't be shown on television or on home video without their clearing it. And apparently... Uh, they never got the Patterson estate never got around to doing that. Uh, there is a print of the movie at the International Cryptozoology Museum in Maine, and uh, is that Lauren Coleman. Lauren place? Coleman, if you on this show, yes, and he was interviewed with the book. He's very helpful. What did he have to say about it? Uh, he gave me some insight about the film because I thought I was under the impression the film was lost because there's if you it's not even in the Internet Movie Database. That's how obscure it is. But he said he had a copy of it. And would be willing to show the film uh, to anybody who wants to watch it for research purposes. He can't show it commercially. So that's in there. And then I basically mentioned whatever happened to uh, Bigfoot from the film. Did it just uh, go into the woods or did it just unzip itself and take the man out of the costume? Mm-hmm. We don't know. And also, too, there were a couple of guys who claimed that they were part of the hoax. Uh, we have to mention them. Bob Hieronymus, who was a friend of uh, Patterson and Gimlin, claimed he was the man in the suit. And a guy named Philip Morris, who had a uh, costume company, claimed he sold the suit to Patterson. However, uh, neither of them have any evidence to back up their claims. There's no photographic evidence of Hieronymus wearing the suit. The suit itself that he claimed he wore has never turned up. And Philip Morris doesn't have a receipt for the sale to Roger Patterson. So it's uh, he said, he said. Why Why would guys come out of the woodwork, come out of the forest, so to speak, to, to claim fraudulence? Uh, you'd have to ask them. I can't get into their heads. Uh, if they have an axe to grind, if they want to get themselves on camera, who knows? Um, I, in the book, I'm not saying that uh, they're liars, but I am saying that they are making claims that are not corroborated. You were talking about something, too. Wasn't there some kind of a, a, something that didn't make sense as far as how they sent it? on the airplane or like tell us about that a little bit all right well the shadiness going on the shadiness uh when they left they were wanted patterson and patterson gimlin Gimlin, they wanted to send the film back to washington state to uh be processed and they claim that uh it was mailed overnight uh there's no evidence of any air flights between humboldt california and uh, yakima washington where it would have been going to so, and it also doesn't make any sense because they drove uh, home the next day. So why would they be flying the film with a, a carrier with the post office, which isn't the most reliable uh, system, as opposed to just driving home with it and then having it uh, processed once they got there? That didn't make any sense. And again, uh, Al Dietley, who supposedly received the film from them after it was mailed in, 
couldn't remember where the film was processed, which is kind of odd because in that part of Washington State, there's not a surplus of film processing labs. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like when I read that, it seems like, well, you know, if once again, if this is not legit and they did somehow, you know, invent this costume and they're worried about, you know, printing it and, and are they doing it in their house? So it's like, there's a lot of stuff where you kind of, the, the dots don't connect. It doesn't. And that's why I said earlier that my problems really weren't with the film itself. It was sort of with the backstory of how the film was shot and how the film was processed because from there, everything gets kind of murky. And also too, uh, Patterson had tried to copyright the word Bigfoot before they went into the forest. Uh, he couldn't do it because it was determined that it's already in the public domain. So I don't know if he was just going out there with the intention of coming back with something that he could really profit off if he had the copyright to it. That's another mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I said, like watching it back, I mean, it's so clear and so like so rare, like the only one that we've ever seen of, of this. That's right. And also it should be noted too, there's a, another weird story that's in the book. Uh, a theory went around for a number of years that a guy named John Chambers created the costume. John Chambers was a Hollywood makeup man, and he won the Academy Award for creating the Planet of the Apes makeup. Okay. It's a rather stupid rumor because John Chambers never knew Patterson and Gimlin. Uh, the, the two cowboys had no connections in Hollywood, and there was right. no reason for John Chambers, who was one of the most prominent makeup men, to uh, go out of his way to create a costume just for this uh, 59 second film which had no guarantee of being taken right. seriously and it's funny that in his obituaries because john chambers obviously passed away this story keeps popping up even though chambers himself even said i had nothing to do with this i don't know why you keep bothering me <laughs> telling me i have something to do with bigfoot he didn't know anything about this yeah like what's the tie in there right just randomly meets these two farmers yeah from, you know it, it doesn't make any sense and it's kind of sad because john chambers had a wonderful career mm -hmm. and yet uh, a lot of people remember him mistakenly for thinking he had something to do with bigfoot you, you talk a little bit about some other films that were kind of uh, around and there's an interesting one, um, a UFO footage that you mentioned the government took and edited and all yeah. this stuff. Can you kind of talk about oh, that? That's actually, well, that's because... Is this stuff that you found out when you were researching? Oh, I actually knew that Patterson? story before I did Oh, okay, book. gotcha. Yeah, I wrote about that uh, the film from Montana, the Mariana footage from 1950. That's the first motion picture footage of UFOs. And it was shot in Montana. Uh, it was a fellow, had a 16-millimeter camera. And it shows, if I'm not mistaken, I think there were two lights going across the sky. The U.S. Air Force wanted to see the film. He showed it to them, and they returned the footage, but he noticed that some of the uh, the frames were missing. It was a little shorter than what he had given them. And that's led to theories that uh, the government was trying to censor the film because uh, the guy who shot it, and I, unfortunately I can't recall his name at the time, uh, said that that footage, that part of the film, clearly showed what the crafts in the sky looked like, whereas the remainder of the film, which you can actually see on YouTube, uh, just really shows uh, white lights going across Montana sky. A lot of strange stuff. So were you, are you into this type of stuff? I, I was a kid in the 70s. I mean, I grew yeah. up with this, and so it's uh, you couldn't turn on the TV or go to the movies or open a magazine or newspaper without seeing UFOs and the Bermuda Triangle and the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. 
uh, one of my favorite shows was In Search of. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier. With Leonard Nimoy. It's a very interesting point. The 70s was very much about that. And once again, I'm a kid from the 70s too, and, and part of Talk is Jericho that I love and so do my fan base is the paranormal conspiracy, cryptozoology. But that was very much a 70s thing, wasn't it? It was, and you could go to the theater and see documentaries on it too. One of my happiest memories is when I was nine years old and I saw Chariots of the Gods. Right. Eric Von Daniken. That was the original Ancient Aliens uh, theory film. And I saw it at the Naples Theater. It was the Dale Theater in the Bronx. Uh, my mother took me to see it. And I still have the paperback tie-in that uh, came out when the book was, when the film was released. And so that was one of uh, the happiest memories. And it's one of my favorite films of the era. You know, it's interesting because I remember that Chariots of the Gods. It was always a little bit foreboding. Like it was talking about like some kind of an Armageddon thing. But it was more like how aliens shaped the culture of, of modern civilization. That's right. I th well, I didn't think it was that foreboding. There was another film uh, later on in the decade called The Late Great Planet Earth, which sort of had biblical yeah, yeah, yeah. theories pointing to uh, Armageddon. Mm -hmm. It was a whole mix of oddball footage and theories, and Orson Welles was in the film too, of course. So that was always <laughs> a lot of fun to see him on screen. Right, right, right. Yeah, but like I remember, like you said, In Search of was huge. You mentioned Six Million Dollar Man with the Bigfoot, all those movies that we talked about. There was a, a show... I can't remember if it was called UFO, but they always dealt with Project Blue Book. Uh, yeah, UFO. It was, I was, was it called yes. UFO? Mm -hmm. I remember it was that. on NBC, yeah. And every week they'd have a new Project Blue Book. Yeah. Like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's like, right. Very much the 70s kind of boom of all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, and it's funny because Bigfoot, as I said, uh, when they started to try to show the film in 1967-68, it just didn't resonate with the public at the time. But by the time they started to get it out into the early 70s, uh, that's when the time that the public was really starting to accept this type of stuff. And it's it, it never stopped. Yeah, to this day. You know, because like I said, do you ever watch kind of modern day Bigfoot sightings in films? No, I don't. That's the funny thing. I've, I've, I tried watching uh, Finding Bigfoot for about two minutes. and <laughs> Because I think the show should be called Not Finding Bigfoot. Well, Not yeah. Finding Bigfoot for seven <laughs> seasons. They keep getting renewed. And it's yeah. like nothing ever happens. They, they've That's the, the biggest pulling the wool over people's eyes showing show business yeah i mean i uh, to be frank I'm, I'm not really a huge bigfoot aficionado prior to doing this i mean i came to the book as i mentioned at the beginning of our interview sort of by accident and but since then it, it's been wonderful to be reacquainted with that aspect of my past because i sort of had forgotten how much i loved bigfoot when i was a kid and all that sort of stuff and now it's like wow it's back again and I'm able to speak with people, and a lot of people who are around my age are they're saying, yo, this brings back great memories. Let me ask you this as we wind down here. You mentioned earlier that um, you were looking at a list of movies that had changed the world, and you chose this one. How did this movie change the world? Well, without this movie, we wouldn't be having this conversation. In fact, nobody would be having a conversation about Bigfoot. It would just be some obscure native american folklore and unless you're a student of that aspect of anthropology it wouldn't be of any interest to you, you would just think oh this is just uh, some some crazy nonsense that some indians came up with thousands of years ago but uh, here we are today and there are conferences uh celebrating bigfoot there are movies and tv shows about bigfoot the entire podcast networks yeah. Pod yeah several uh mm -hmm. podcasts out there about that I mean, Harry and the Hendersons, uh, <laughs> that franchise uh, was very, very successful for a while. It, it, changed the, it changed the world because we wouldn't, nobody would have ever thought of 
about doing anything. You couldn't invent Bigfoot. You, you just, Hollywood couldn't come up with this type of monster and people would just accept it. The beauty about Bigfoot is that there's, there might be something out there that we had never seen before and we want to see it again. And that's why I guess we're finding Bigfoot or perhaps not finding Bigfoot more accurately. You want to see it again. It's just the beauty of the Patterson-Gimlin film is the fact that it's only 59 seconds. If it had been five minutes, mm -hmm. it wouldn't have had the same magic. It leaves but you wanting more. Yeah, you want and more. if it was only five seconds, like most of the other ones are, you can't adapt to it quick enough. Yeah. This one, you actually see it and, and ingest it and watch it. And some people have said that the Bigfoot in the Patterson-Gimlin film in many ways is uh, one of two films of that era where amateurs are shooting something that you weren't supposed to see and it still resonates with us. The other film was the Zapruder film, right. The Kennedy Assassination, which, Great was, point. which was shot by an amateur, Abraham Zapruder, on an 8mm camera. There's no, no professional footage of news footage of the Kennedy assassination. That's crazy, yeah. It was, it's, the limousine just went through a section of Dallas where the news cameras weren't focused. And there were actually three amateur films that captured the moment when the president was killed. But the Zapruda film was the only one in color and the only one that had the, the full view of uh, the bullet going through his skull. And that, I think, ran roughly around the same length. It was close to 50 seconds or uh, 60 yeah. seconds as the Patterson-Gimlin film. So the, these two strange little films uh, of that era that uh, are showing us something that we couldn't imagine was possible. You know, it's really interesting. They're kind of sister films, both in the way they're shot, the way they look, the shakiness of it, and the controversy behind both, conspiracy and otherwise. Very similar. Yeah, and actually Zapruder film was one of the films that was on my list of films that I would have mm. written, but there's been so much written about the Zapruder film, and there really hasn't been that much about the Patterson-Gimlin film, so I yeah. figured let uh, we'll let another uh, JFK scholar yeah. do Zapruder. You know, it's interesting, though, like in this day and age when you mentioned earlier, everybody has a camera phone, and if something like that ever happened again, you'd see 17 different angles of it, you know, close up with filters on it, you know, whatever it was. Another reason why this did kind of change the world is it did capture something you weren't supposed to see. It opened up a whole new world of this, I, don't, I keep saying paranormal, it's not the right thing, but supernatural, paranormal, fantastic creature type of a vibe that you mentioned started in the 70s, went all the way through. And also, you're not, you're not gonna get that ever again because like I said, this was something that was captured on a camera just coincidentally. Now, everybody has a camera. You know? And everything is viral video. Everything is one, two, three. You shoot it, it's put it on YouTube, right. and tomorrow you're a sensation. This actually took some time before it was able to get out into the world. And that's really also the beauty of it, too, is just gradually seeped into the culture. It just didn't hit people. And that's the problem with viral videos. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Mm -hmm. This one lasts forever. Uh, last two questions. What's your next book? It seems like I love the idea uh, now that I want to go back and read your other book of disappearing movies. And now you did the one on, on the Patterson film. What else do you have in mind? The next book coming out, which should be out in April 2020, is how uh, Jesus Christ has been depicted in movies from the beginning of films way back in the 1890s to today. Interesting. 
Wow, you think of uh, William Defoe and was it James Carville? Is that what his name was? The guy who played it? James? Oh, uh, uh, not James Carville. He worked for Bill Clinton. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I can't pronounce Whatever his last name. Whatever it was, name. James yeah. something or other. Was that The Last Temptation of Christ? Yeah, 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 that's, yeah. I think that's, I'm sorry if I mispronounced Gosh, his name. Gosh, I forgot. But I remember how, how uh, controversial that movie was at the yeah. time when it came out. Well, there had actually been a lot of controversial films going way back uh into the 1890s, actually one of the, the first films created something of a copyright uh, problem. Uh, it showed the passion of, the, it was actually about the passion of the Christ too. So uh, in many ways that genre came full circle. It's interesting, we'll have to hook up and do a show about that when it comes out. But last question for you, what is the biggest pro that it's legit to you and the biggest con? Like what's the, the, the thing that you see that this tells me something's very, very real or this is something that seems a little bit off to me. Well, as I had mentioned earlier, the, the backstory uh, is the con because mm -hmm. it, it's uh, it's kind of murky and the dots don't connect. The pro is when you look at it, it's like, oh, is this a man in a suit? If it is, uh, it's an uncommonly clever man in an uncommonly clever suit. And somehow, whatever these two guys were, I don't think they were expert costume designers. Yeah. And... That's why it, this film, it, to me, is so weird. And I use the word weird in the title because this, this just isn't right. But, but if, it, if it's not legit, how can you disprove it? And it just, in many ways, it just, uh, it, it just leaves me wondering what it is that I'm looking at. And honestly, I, that's why I said in the book, I'm not putting my opinion into the book. I want people to, to come up with their own ideas for themselves as to, after getting all the facts... Is this real or is it fake? You decide. Yeah, and I like that. And then to me, too, like I said, I don't think they seem the type of guys you mentioned to, to come up with this costume and also to be uh, not clever enough, but to, to, to think about it enough to go, okay, don't walk like a normal guy and swing your arms kind of weirdly and have some strange kind of weird positioning where you look almost like an action figure that your knees don't bend. You know, so that to me, like watching it, in theory, oh, it's a guy in a suit because it's so, oh, they just happened to come onto this. But when you watch it and really know what you're talking about, it's not right. It's very weird, exactly what it is. That's why it's the weirdest movie ever made. At least I think it is. It is. Phil, thank you so much, man. You know what we're going to call uh, the, the Jesus movie podcast? We're going to call it Jesus Cast Superstar. Okay, works for me. <laughs> That's what we'll call it. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Chris. All right, thanks to Phil Hall. Check out Phil's book, The Weirdest Movie Ever Made, the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film. You can get a copy at Amazon or wherever you buy books. It's a really great in-depth look at the film conspiracy surrounding it. Uh, Phil did some serious research into Patterson and Gimlin as well, so you get some great info on their lives and what happened to them after capturing this footage. Thanks again to Phil Hall for sharing all that he discovered and uncovered about that 59 piece of uh, film footage. Very controversial, one of the most famous, the most famous Bigfoot film film we've ever seen and thanks to all of you taking advantage of the pre-sale booking for the rock and wrestling rager at sea part due the second wave of chris jericho's cruise we're setting sail again january 20th to the 24th 2020 why is there so many 20s because this vacation is gonna be 20 times better than any vacation you ever had we're going from miami to the bahamas that's the port uh the nassau port great time last time i want you to be there for us aw is going to be there fozzy is playing farewell to fear uh brad williams is the host vicky guerrero is the guest uh 
cruise director. Jake the Snake Roberts is going to be there. DDP is going to be there. Beyond the Darkness doing paranormal events. And that's just the start. That's the tip of the iceberg. Trust me, we've got some huge names coming. So don't forget, you can sign up for pre-sale booking right now at chrisjerichocruise.com. We go on sale to the general public on March 13th, but you need to book your cabin now because cabins are going fast. Uh, so much quicker than last year. We're going to sell it very, very quickly. Uh, and this is not some kind of a, of a prompt, some kind of an advertising ploy. We are going to sell out. So if you want to make sure you get a cabin, and get a cabin that you want, sign up today at chrisjerichocruise.com and sign up for the pre-sale booking list before March 13th. Okay, that's next Wednesday. Come join the party. It's one of the greatest vacations you're ever going to have. Book your cabin now. Pre-sale booking at chrisjerichocruise.com. All right, thank you so much. Coming up on Friday, a taste of one of the exclusive per, uh, perks of the cruise, something that you'll uh, want to be a part of next January if you were one of the first 400 cabins that booked. That's already uh, done. Uh, but if you didn't get a chance to book in the first 400, you'll get a little taste of what's going to happen during the Q&A. And if you did book in the first 400 cabins so fast, you get a chance to, to hear how last year's Q&A went. We had a great time hosted by Craig Gass. It was very, very funny. I'm going to play that for you on Friday. Just think, if you booked, uh, if you booked your cabin in the first 400, this is what you uh, will hear. And if you were there last year, you're going to get a chance to do it. So it's the last live recording from the very first Rock and Wrestling Rager at sea as we get ready to go on Rock and Wrestling Rager or do the second wave. Here's a taste of the fun and the excitement and the unique questions that were asked. You're going to hear that on Wednesday. So have a great weekend. Uh, uh, in the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay cool, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. Big yeah, boy. And if you haven't seen Patterson Gilman film, go check it out now. It's amazing. We'll see you soon. Have a great weekend. Oh, yeah.